The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let us carry on where we finished off this morning. Uh, now we're going to have a look at the 11th Sutta of the Attaka Vagga, the chapter of eight. And uh, this sutta is called the Kalaha Vivada Sutta. Uh, Quarrels and Disputes is the English translation. And this is a very profound sutta uh, and quite hard to really grasp all the details. Uh, but uh, it's also very interesting. We'll see how much details we go into. It's a bit, uh, bit unclear. We'll see what, see what happens as we go through this uh, and this sutta is really just a particular take on, uh, I, I, could, I think it's basically dependent origination uh, that this sutta is about. And so you want to try to kind of, I guess, understand dependent origination a little bit. Uh, not too much depth, but a little bit based on the ideas that are expressed here. So, Kalaha Vivada Suttas. Let's see what happens as we go through. And we are still dealing with the idea of right view, trying to understand the world in the right way. This is really what all of these things come down to. So, it starts off by saying, where do quarrels, disputes, and disputes come from? And lamentations, sorrow, and stinginess. What of conceit and arrogance and slander too? Tell me please, where do they come from? So this is someone who is speaking to the Buddha and asking the Buddha, where do these things come, th come from? Why are there quarrels and disputes in the world? Etc. Etc. It's a very interesting question. Yeah, if we can answer this question, we can kind of answer so many of the, uh, the big issues, uh, the problems and things. Uh, uh, actually, a very nice sutta, which is very similar to this, and this is the uh, uh, this is the Sakapanya Sutta, in, found in the Diga Nikaya number twenty-one, I think it is, uh, and uh, in the Sakapanya Sutta, which means the questions of Sakka, Sakka being the kind of the head honcho of the Tavatinsa heaven, uh, and uh, there the uh, Sakka asks the Buddha. He says to the Buddha, "Why, why is the case that when?" Everyone in the world wants to live in peace. They want to live in harmony. They want to live together like brothers and sisters or what have you. Why is it that we still carry on fighting with each other? Why do we have wars? Why do we have violence? When everyone, nobody wants that. What's going on? What's the story? And it's interesting, right? It's really kind of fascinating. How come on the one hand we want to live in peace and yet somehow we end up always arguing with each other and we end up with so many problems in the world? It's a really good question. And of course the answer is that, well, it's because we... It goes into a whole sequence going backwards from one thing to another one. And it goes through the whole idea of, of course, attachments and desires and all of these kind of things. But uh, basically, we can't stop ourselves from living in violence, even though we don't want to live in these things. And it's rooted in the kind of the false ideas, especially rooted in the idea of a self. As long as there is a self, as long as there is a me, and you take this me to be important, then arguments and quarrels will ultimately 
come from that. And this is why this idea of non-self is such a the fundamental, the final thing that you have to see through to be able to overcome all the problems in the in the world. This kind of following on from what we were talking about before. So where do these things come from? He's asking here. And then he says, quarrels and disputes, they come from what we hold dear. As do lamentations and sorrow and stinginess and conceit and arrogance. Quarrels and disputes are linked to stinginess. And when disputes have arisen, there is slander. Right? So quarrels and disputes come from what we hold dear. Lamentation, sorrow, stinginess, conceit and arrogance, all of these things come from what we hold dear. It's kind of a, it's a, really challenging, isn't it? Uh, because uh, there is a reason why we hold things dear. It's because we think they are meaningful to us. Uh, because these things are things that actually matter in our lives. These are the things that make our life you know, this is why we live, because things are dear to us. If nothing was dear to us, then we might as well not live, perhaps. Is that what the Buddha is talking about? Maybe. Maybe there's some kind of really deep, hidden... There is a, I think there is a very deep and hidden meaning here, already at this point, to get this feeling. There's something very profound going on with this, right? What you hold dear is the problem, and yet that is why we kind of live, to have things dear to us. So this is very profound. All of these things, yes, sorrow, lamentation, stinginess, disputes come from what we have dear. It's kind of, it's very challenging here. But um, uh, it is also uh, basically the outcome of dependent origination. Dependent origination, uh, right, it talks about uh, attachments and all of these kind of things. And of course, when you have attachments in the world, then attachments, they, that leads you to safeguard the things that you are attached to, holding on to these things and making them yours, making sure no one steals them from you or destroys your relationships and all of these kind of things. So once you have a vested interest in the world, a vested interest in the things around us, then we will also employ, if necessary, violence and uh, and wars or whatever to safeguard those things that are ours. Uh, so as long as we have things that we are dear to us, uh, then we will, uh, these, all of these things arise as a consequence. Uh, it's kind of extraordinary. So what are the things that are dear to us? Uh, well, the things that are dear to us uh, are obviously anything in this world that you are attached to. Uh, relationships, yeah, or all anything, any material things that you are that are important to you, yeah, and anything in the sensory realm really that is important to you, you hold dear. But it's also things like views, yeah, views are also dear to us. This is my view, and if some and you know that it is dear to you when you start arguing to uh, defend your view, right? Uh, what what you say is there's no rebirth. Be quiet. You don't understand, <laughs> right? So, the, so there's so many things that are dear to us, or even just the practices, practices that we do. We come here to the BSV. Yeah, this is probably dear to you. I hope it's dear to you. Otherwise, <laughs> I hope it's dear to you. That's interesting. How how would you resolve that one? It and. The, the way to resolve that one, because if I say it, I hope is dear to you, it means that you're going to argue and dispute about it. <laughs> so, 
So the, the way, one of the things to understand this, remember that uh, this does not mean that we should abandon everything that's dear to us. That's not, that's not really what this means. Uh, what it means is that we should choose the things that are dear to us carefully. Yeah, that's what, really what it means. Uh, and we should start off unloading some of the things that are dear to us that are not so important. Uh, and we should grasp something higher as dear. Uh, Make coming to the BSV, make that dear to you. That's a good thing to be dear. Yeah, Make doing some meditation practice dear to you. Make kindness dear to you. Make the practicing of this path, make that dear to you. And reduce some of the other things that are dear to you. Yeah, All the silly things in the world, whatever opinions and views you may have about which football team is better than which... <laughs> That's kind of this is the thing that people have as dear in the world. I don't know if anyone here has this as dear, but uh, this is the kind of things, yeah, kind of really stupid things that are utterly irrelevant. Uh, all they do is make your life miserable because you end up arguing with others. Uh, which political party is superior to which political party? What what kind of uh, all of these things? This worldly stuff uh, that makes and no one really has the answer in that realm anyway. Uh, so you change your attitude a little bit. You place your dearness somewhere else. And this is this idea of understanding that when it comes to attachment, you need a ladder of attachment. There's nothing wrong with attaching. There can't be anything. Well, there's maybe something wrong with it in the final sense. But in the, temp in the more immediate sense, we have to attach. So you learn to attach a bit differently. You learn to choose your attachments with... Um, with wisdom, uh, you are kind of more. Uh, you are more wise about your attachments. Uh, you taste those attachments, and you kind of the more delectable ones. You choose those instead of those uh, harsh ones or the, the bad ones. So we are still things that are dear to us. Uh, we still attach, but we learn gradually how to overcome it. Because letting go of everything that's dear is impossible. You need to practice the path gradually to do that. Uh, and as you do this. Then this is what happens. You, you start to understand the problem of holding things dear. It leads to so many problems in the world. All of these things arise from that. Lamentation, sorrow, yeah, quarrels, disputes, yes, lamentation, sorrow for sure. When people, you know, when we, these relationships break up, stinginess, absolutely, because we want to hold on to things. Yeah, stinginess comes from holding dear, conceit and arrogance. Well, yes, because the things that we hold dear are things that we identify with. Especially when it comes to views and ideas about the world, we identify with these things. Your five khandas, yeah, you hold those dear, right? Do you hold your five khandas dear? This is my body. Stay away from my body. This Don't touch me. This is mine. This is my area. This is my five khandas. These are my perceptions, my feelings. And this is the things that are closest to us. And of course, these things are going to be dear to us in a certain way. We don't really want to have any trouble. We don't want people to kill us and this kind of thing. So... so uh, Dearness is a very broad idea, views, identity, uh, um, all of these kind of things are part of this. Uh, so why do we have things dear to us? This is getting quite obvious in a way, but uh, the questioning goes on. I think we can understand why that is, uh, but this is what he asks anyway. So where do what we hold dear in the world spring from? And the greed that are loose in the world 
from where come the hopes and aims a person has for the next life? Where do these greeds that are loose in the world, the dearness and the hopes and the aims for the next life, where does all this come from? What we hold dear in the world spring from desire, as do the greed that are loose, the greeds that are loose in the world, from there spring the hopes and aims a man or person has for the next life. Desire leads to attachments, yeah, this is kind of dependent origination. And then ultimately all of that leads to all of these problems. Uh, you, you desire things, so you try to uh, satisfy those desires by grasping things in the world and making them yours, hold on to them. Uh, yeah? This kind of comes as a natural consequence uh, and uh, you um, then act uh, accordingly. Uh. Let's just go one link bef more before I discuss this in a bit more detail. What we hold dear in the world springs from desire as do sorry and where does desire in the world spring from and judgments too where do they come from and anger lies and doubt and other things spoken by the ascetic that's the buddha what they call pleasant and unpleasant in the world based on that desire comes about seeing the appearance and disappearance of forms a person forms judgment in the world. More dependent origination, yeah, pleasant and unpleasant. This is like feeling. So feeling leads to craving. You can see how this whole thing works. And uh, so you have this one step leading to the next one. So we look at the world. We decide what is pleasant and what is unpleasant. Uh, we desire the things that are pleasant. And because we desire them, we try to grasp onto things that create that pleasure for us in the future. Yeah, so this is very obvious in the sensory realm that we do this all the time yeah, in the sensory realm, in relationships, in owning things and all of these kind of things. But we also do it in the realm of views. Yeah, and, and it's kind of fascinating. Why do we have views about anything? Yeah, and this is such an interesting idea because um, what the Buddha is really saying here, if a view is dear to you, I'm a Buddhist. I believe in rebirth. I believe in the Four Noble Truths. Yeah? Why do we have these views? And the reason we have these views is because they are dear to us. It comes from feeling. We hold views because of feelings. The feeling arises. And then you have desires to, to kind of to desires that relate to who you are as a person. The desires that relate to, you know, to ideas about how existence and all of these kind of things and then we cling on to views that relate to those things that satisfy those desires but it comes from feelings and so how do we choose our views we choose our views usually because of how they feel to us if a view feels good to you you hold on to it you grasp onto that view and that's really interesting because it shows you how hollow it often is yeah, how kind of empty of real meaning it is. You choose it because it's nice. Why do you look at the world in a certain way? Why do you have certain preferences? Why do, why do you have certain politics? Why do you have certain religion? A lot of these things, they come because they feel good to us in one way or another. You grow up in a Christian family. Your parents told you there is a God who looks after you. 
And then you think, okay, maybe I should believe in God. Yeah, maybe that's a God. That actually feels really nice because that's what everyone else, my mates, think there's a God and, and what, what have you. So it feels really nice and so you believe in God. It's not really a rational thing. But then we become Buddhists and then we believe in rebirth. And it's just as irrational sometimes. It's not as if we are any more rational than the Christians. We're just the same because we're just human beings. And human being, this is what they do. So we just exchange one set of beliefs for another one. And, and it still has to do with uh, you know what feels nice to us. Uh, you're part of a certain culture and all of these kind of things. And this kind of makes you a bit more humble yeah, when you think about it. You think, jeepers, why do I take my views so seriously here? We always believe that we are such rational creatures. We believe rebirth because it's true. Yeah, it's proven to be true. That's why I believe in this. I believe in the Buddha because the Buddha is the best. Not because of my feelings, because the Buddha is definitely the best. That's why I believe in the Buddha. <laughs> and that it ultimately, a lot of these things come from feelings. And so you become a bit more humble about things. You don't become so argumentative when you start arguing because you understand that a lot of these things are kind of views built on quicksand. You never know when they kind of, how steady they are, how sturdy they are. And suddenly you disappear and suddenly you stop being a Buddhist, you become a Christian or you become an atheist. Yeah, this happens. Sometimes people are Buddhist and think, yeah, Buddhism, why, am I, why do I believe in this stuff? I don't believe this anymore. Check it all out. And then you have a different view, view of the world. Uh, this happens. Uh, so um, becomes, you become a bit more humble. It doesn't mean that you should throw out your views. It doesn't mean that anyone else knows anything more than you do, right? So don't throw them out. They are still good views to have because from a Buddhist point of view, they will lead you in the right direction. So they're still good. Uh, but you just become a bit more, okay, don't hold so hard. And that's, I think, the right way of having views. Uh, don't hold them so hard. Uh, it also means you're more flexible. It means you're more willing to change. Remember that as long as you're not a noble person, as long as you're not an Arya, there's going to be a degree of wrong view. So we're always trying to get more and more right view, leaning in that direction. And the more powerful your right view is, the quicker this path is going to work. Many of the things that we do also feel good. We do things that are often just... Uh, you know, we live in certain ways, we do certain things, and sometimes you find that you, your meditation is like becomes like a ritual. Yeah, you sit down every morning at this time, and then you meditate. Why? Because I've always done this, because I'm a Buddhist, because I have to do it, because this is the way it is, or whatever. Yeah, somehow it feels good to do it. Uh, but again, we have to be careful, because if we do things just because it kind of feels good in a more intellectual way, and you just do it as a habit, there comes a point when you don't investigate properly anymore. Am I, is it really working? Am I getting anywhere? Do I just do it and just nod every, every day? Or, or, or what's going on here? How, how useful is it? So remember that a lot of the things we do, they are like sila bhatta. Sila is like the virtue. Bhatta is like observances that we take on. We observe meditation practice one half an hour every day. We observe coming to the BSV for Dhamma talks, but uh, you don't really take in what is being said or, or whatever. Or you observe uh, the five precepts. And remember the five precepts. Sometimes people think, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping the five precepts, so I'm really virtuous. But it's not enough to keep the five precepts. Five precepts is an absolute minimum. Yeah? So if you're not keeping the five precepts yet on a daily basis, then 
go back and do that and then build on that because it is really a minimum. If you really want to advance on this path, you have to purify yourself in a much more profound sense. You have to learn how to think differently, how to have more metta and compassion within. You have to practice kindness on a daily basis. You have to overcome all of these negative states in the mind. So don't just grasp onto those five precepts because you have been taught, because it feels good, and therefore you desire to do them, and then you hold on to them. They are dear to me, and then that's it. No, take it much further than that. That's when the path becomes really powerful. So we optimize this idea of kindness and virtue on the Buddhist path. And so, same thing with meditation. You inquire, you don't do it as just a observance, but you do it as something more profound. So, dear to you, but don't stop there. Don't grasp it too hard. Ask yourself how you can go further, how you can make this more powerful and uh, imbue this path with all those qualities that make it speed up a little bit. Uh, the fast path, the shortcut to awakening, right? Uh, the shortcut to awakening is the, way, is the shortcut where you have as much right to you as possible and you, boom, you go forward at full speed. Uh, you, the engine is the Buddha, the Dhamma is the engine, uh, and you kind of make that a super-duper motor engine which full takes you at maximum speed forward. Uh, that's the idea. This is the engine here. Uh. Anyway, I'm just kind of uh, giving you some ideas of what I think is meant by all of this. Uh, uh, anger in lies and doubt also come from what is pleasant and unpleasant. Yeah, when things are unpleasant, it's very easy to get upset and angry. First of all, you make it a bit oh, averse, and eventually the anger comes if it is too unpleasant. Go away. I don't want to see you. Oh, no, let me be, let me be in peace. <laughs> and then you get upset after a while. Yeah. And um, lies, yeah, we lie because... Uh, so much of immorality comes precisely because of this distinction between the unpleasant and unpleasant, the pleasant and the unpleasant. We become immoral because we want to safeguard the pleasant around us. We do immoral things. We have we lie and all kind of other stuff. Doubt, yeah, doubt. Remember what doubt is about. Doubt is about not knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Yeah, that is what doubt is about. And when we have a lot of pleasure and un displeasure, especially in the world of the five senses. Uh, we often we get confused about where real happiness is and where dukkha is, uh, and so we have doubt about where to go. And this is one of the reasons why we do meditation practice and why you try to understand where real happiness is to be found. It reduces your doubt. Uh, you have less uncertainty about where happiness is, uh, and then eventually, when you reach the Jhana states, the samadhi, when doubt is completely gone. Yeah? Because then you know that uh, the sensory realm, there's no happiness, that you have clarity about where happiness is to be found, where it's not to be found. Doubt disappears. It's a bit random the way this is. It's not really, you can see what, how verse is very different from the prose. And the prose is very clearly structured. Four kinds of wrong speech, three kinds of bad action, three kinds of wrong... Uh, mental uh, mental attitude, but here is kind of all kind of higgledy piggledy kind of you know uh, <laughs> anger lies and doubt. It's kind of a strange. But this is kind of the point of verse. Yeah, it is a bit more. It's a bit more random. A bit more. Uh, 
it's more inspiring, especially if you read the Pali, it kind of flows beautifully here. So, um, uh, the pleasant and the unpleasant is where all of this comes from. And seeing the appearance and disappearance of forms, uh, a person forms judgments. Uh, where do judgments come from? Uh, and uh, the idea here is that, uh, you know, we, we, we judge the world, we see what gives us happiness, what does not. Uh, appearance and disappearance of form, what are the things that are reliable, what are not reliable. Uh, then we make judgments on these things. Uh, and here it's specifically form, so it's a bit more limited. But this really, I suppose, goes for everything. Ideas and views and everything, really. We make judgments in, on this kind of basis, ultimately. What are the things that lead us in the right way? Anger, lies and doubt. These things are two when that pair is present. Yeah, this come, just been, just been talking about that. One who has doubt should train in the path of knowledge. That is from the knowledge that the ascetic speaks of these things. The path of knowledge is the Eightfold Path. Train in the Eightfold Path and as you do that rightly, you will overcome doubt eventually. Things become clear to you. So what does all of this mean in practice? What, is, what can we learn from all of this? Uh, and um, what you can learn from all of this is again comes back to this idea that right view, a lot of right view is about understanding. Ultimately, all the right view is about that. Uh, understanding happiness and suffering in the world. Uh, what real happiness is. Uh, what uh, real suffering is. Uh, and then as you do that, you, have, will have, you will desire the right kind of things. Uh, and ultimately the desire will just disappear because you understand that real happiness is actually the absence of a desire uh, when the mind becomes peaceful. Uh, and so understanding happiness, pleasure and displeasure leads to the right kind of desire or the wrong kind of, or the absence of desire entirely. Uh, and then that leads to the giving up of things being dear. Yeah. And then when things don't are dear anymore, then all of these problems that are listed here, they kind of disappear. Uh, so a lot of this is understanding pleasure and displeasure, uh, and then not being led by the nose, by the false promises of pleasure and happiness in the world, uh, which actually don't lead you anywhere. Uh. Where do pleasant and unpleasant spring from? Uh? What, when what is absent, do these things not occur? And also on the topic of appearance and disappearance, uh, Tell me where they spring from her. This is the disappearance and, disappearance and appearance of form. Pleasant and unpleasant spring from contact. When contact is absent, they do not occur. And on the topic of appearance and disappearance, uh, I tell you, they also spring from there, from contact. So... Contact. What is contact? Contact is a strange thing. Yeah, we are, we contact the world, and in the suttas it also says that contact is when the object. Yeah, you see something, microphone, huh? <laughs> uh, and uh, you see something, and you have the eye, and when you see something, an object and the eye come together, consciousness arises, uh, and the meeting of the three, uh, the sangiti coming together, not sangiti, sang. What is it? Anyway, so 
can't remember now, the meeting of the three is called contact. So what is what is that? Is, it, is that something special? Is it anything different from feeling? Is it the same as feeling? Yeah. And it's kind of not really clear if, if contact is something separate. And it can't really be anything separate. The best way to think about contact is just experience. Yeah, Whenever you have an experience of the world, at that moment you are contacting something. Yeah. So right now you have an experience, right? You see something, that's experience. You hear something, that's experience. Don't smell very much. So it's, uh, it's not much experience there. Yeah. Uh, feeling the body, body is always present, that's experience. There's a mental content, that's experience. So there's lots of experience going on all the time. And contact is like the beginning of a particular experience. You contact the world means the start of experience happens at that point. And when there is an experience, there is a feeling that comes with that experience. You enjoy what you're doing. If I look out here today and I see how many people are here today compared to yesterday, I could think that many people did not enjoy their experience of being here. Yeah. <laughs> That's why the crowd is diminished. <laughs> but uh, I think it's probably more, more likely because they only had a few days off, so they couldn't stay for uh, the rest of the week. But uh, yeah, so we act on those experiences. We contact. It feels good. It feels bad. That's where it all comes from. But. Um, if experience, if feeling is a problem, because we have a feeling leads to all of these other things, and we have to maybe end feeling, right? What does that mean? It means that we have to end experience. That's really what this is about. Remember, this is dependent origination. In one way, everything originates, one leading to orig- origination of the next one. But in the cessation mode, one ceases, that leads to the cessation of the one afterwards. If you want to make an end of disputes and quarrels, it looks like we have to make an end of a contact, which is an end of experience. This is kind of Buddhism for you. Buddhism is uh, very interesting. Yeah? <laughs> challenging. Yeah? Buddhism is pretty much the most challenging thing you can do in life, I think. It's really challenging here. Yeah? And uh, but uh, Buddhism is only for those who like a good challenge. If you don't like challenges, then uh, you will just carry on suffering instead. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so all of these things come from contact, appearance and disappearance, also because it's part of experience, coming and going. They spring from there. Yeah. So where does contact in the world spring from? Yeah. And possessions too. Where do they come from? Yeah. When what is absence is the no possessiveness. When what disappears, do contacts not strike? I, this idea of contact striking is quite striking here. Yeah. <laughs> Bang! What, what, what do you mean by contact striking? It, uh, isn't it kind of nice to experience things? And there is this beautiful simile somewhere in the suttas about the six sense bases. And they say the sixth sense base is like a flayed cow. Yeah, you take a cow, you take all the outer skin off, so all you have is a very sensitive un- skin underneath, like the flesh, directly exposed to the elements outside. And when you take the outer skin off, it's like you become super, super duper sensitive to everything. The slightest touch is really painful and really unpleasant. And that's how the Buddha compares the sense experience too. It's like you're like a flayed cow. All these things hitting you all the time. Yeah. 
being having sensory experience is problematic, says the Buddha. It's very painful. And of course, you start to see that in your meditation. Yeah, you start to calm down. Sometimes if you're very tired, have you noticed when you're very tired, you close your eyes. Yeah, you just, oh, close my eyes. And it's very nice to close your eyes because you are reducing the input from the world outside. That's why it's nice to close your eyes. Yeah, It feels more peaceful when you do that. So actually, you start to understand fairly early on if you are sensitive and you are aware of how you live and how you react to the world around you, you start to see that all the sensory impingement actually is painful. It disturbs you. It is very active. Things always going on. You cannot really become peaceful with all the sensory activity going on. You're like a flayed cow. Yeah? Always kind of ir irritated, constantly irritated by the world. And this is why, again, you will notice when you meditate, it starts to become peaceful. The senses start to shut down. And what does it feel like when the senses shut down? It feels blimmin' marvelous. <laughs> it's really enjoyable. Yeah, it's actually so nice when things start to shut down. Anyone who has even a little bit of meditation experience will have some idea of what that means. The deeper you go in meditation, the more beautiful it becomes. Very large part of that is because the senses shut down. The senses are no longer there. You're just going inwards. The senses are a disturbance. And reflect on that. Yeah, I mean, one thing is the Buddha saying it, but you will see that very clearly for yourself in meditation. This is part of what you will call vipassana. People often ask, what is vipassana? What is samatha? Tell me. <laughs> what is it? And what it is, is this kind of thing. Yeah, you see in your meditation, the more peaceful, the more calm you are, the more insight you have. And you can't, av you can't avoid the insight. It's good to solidify it a little bit by thinking about it clearly, but you can't avoid seeing that when the body is gone, the senses are gone. It's wonderful. Yeah, this is insight. This is insight about dukkha, because now you know where dukkha is and where sukkha is. It's insight about impermanence and impermanence. It's, it's insight about self and non-self as well. It all comes there. All you have to go, it becomes very quiet, and then it's obvious what is going on. This is why Calm and insight are two sides of the same coin. Can't really, yeah, you can't really avoid seeing things when you are very peaceful in this way. You don't have to do vipassana meditation. In, in fact, there is no such thing as vipassana meditation. It's just meditation. Meditation has both vipassana and samatha because they go together in this way. I know that people like the word vipassana meditation. Yeah, you go on a vipassana course. Uh, it's a nice word, yeah, it's good marketing, insight meditation, yeah, I want insight. It's really good marketing, yeah. But that's really all. There's not much, you know, the, the, the slogan is really where it ends. It begins and ends with the slogan. The Buddha doesn't talk about vipassana meditation at all. He just talks about meditation. There is no such thing as vipassana meditation here, samatha meditation there. There is just meditation. It leads to both vipassana and samatha. That's the right way of thinking about this. So it's a nice word, vipassana meditation, but it doesn't mean anything else apart from samatha meditation. These things mean the same thing. They lead to the same thing. They have the same cause and the same result. So, um, yeah. Sometimes people ask me, do you teach vipassana meditation? And I don't know what to say. If I say yes, I'm sort of uh, misleading. If I say no, it's also misleading. Yeah. 
don't know what to say when people say that. Say, yeah, may kind of, maybe. Mm. And then people hang up straight away on the phone. They don't want to hear anymore. What do you mean, maybe? You don't know what you're talking about. Okay, bikya, cut you off. <laughs> That's very interesting. The world is a strange place. Anyway, so... Um, uh, so where are we now? I completely lost my name and form. Name and form. Ah, where does contact come from? That's right. Uh, name and form causes contact. Possessions spring from wishing. When wishing is absent, there is no possessiveness. When form disappears, contacts don't strike. We were talking about that's why we're talking about the striking of contact. That's where where this kind of distraction came from. <laughs> so, um, where does distraction come from? Huh? I doesn't say that. Huh? Um, <laughs> so it comes from name and form. Yeah, name and form cause contact. Uh, we experience the world because of name and form. Nama rupa leads to passa. They have. You can see they have taken away one step there. The salayatana step is missing. It's sometimes that is missing in dependent origination. Same thing here. So it comes from name and form. Namarupa, contact. And um, what is name and form? Well, name and form really is just, uh, is just again, experience. That's really what it is. Yeah, so experience, the fact that we have the ability. It's like the ability to experience. These are the aspects of our personality that make experience possible. Yeah, experience comes through these things. Name and form, both name and form are usually required to experience something. So form is the the set of the, the five senses. Yeah, it's the when you have a sight or something that hits the eye so to speak, it comes through the eye and then First coming through the eye, that's the form aspect, and then it goes to the mind, and the mind makes sense of what is hap happening. Yeah. So you see something, yeah, and then you make sense of it. Okay, person, uh, yeah, room, lights, door, uh, Ranjani. <laughs> you make sense of it. You put names on people, yeah, and you make kind of... Uh, 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 so this is how these things kind of come come about. Yeah, it comes about through these things. And again, it shows you that, uh, of course, name and form, this is really what our life is about. This is our personality. This is who we are as people. Uh, and once you have that personality, once you have a personal existence, experience happens. When experience happens, there's pleasure and displeasure. Then you have craving. Then you have attachments. Then you have arguments. Then you have rebirth. You have this whole gamut of problem problems arising from that. Uh, once you exist, you have a problem. That's really what the Buddha is saying here. Nama Rupa is the problem. Name and form. When form disappears, contacts don't strike. Well, they don't strike very much anyway. There still might be the, the, the um, uh, immaterial realms, but they don't. You know, most of form, most of contact is gone when form disappears. You can have contact directly through nama without rupa. But that's very, very refined. And when wishing is absent, there is no possessiveness. Well, that's more obvious. You can't possess things if you don't wish to possess things. So how do 
how to proceed so that form disappears, right? This is getting very profound. I don't know who's asking this question, but someone who's really into Dhamma, obviously. Then any of you ever asked these kind of questions in this way? You should try. Next time Ajahn Brahm comes, see what he says. Yeah. So see, okay, there is disputes and arguments. Why are there disputes and arguments? Yeah. And see, see what he says there. And then he will say, oh, because, because of things you are attached to, because you are, you know, the things you like and dislike. Why are there things you like and dislike? <laughs> and see, and see it, I it's, it's probably not going to look quite like this, I can, because Adam Brahm is a, he does things differently. Yeah. But uh, see, how, see what happens. That would be interesting, right? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> am I? Is it being taped? Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. I had no idea it was being taped. Doesn't matter. Ajahn Brahm will forgive me. Ajahn Brahm forgives anything here. Yeah. He's not gonna he's gonna be fine there. So uh, <laughs> But it's good fun sometimes to do that and see what happens, right? Because uh, see how things kind of match up with each other. I'd sometimes do that with Ajahn Brahm. I don't have any I don't have much compunction or you know, I try to be in a good state of mind that I try not to kind of do things just purely out of being evil, of course. Uh, but uh, but just out of out of inquiry, yeah. See what Adam Brahm said. One of the nice things about someone who is very wise uh, a person someone like Ajahn Brahm, I sit next to him a lot of the time and it's a really cool person to sit next to. He never almost never talks. He doesn't talk very much. He just sits there perfectly happy. And if you ask him, ask him a question, then sometimes he doesn't even want to answer. You know, he's just completely, <laughs> he just wants to be peaceful or whatever. So you have to know when to ask the question. And if you have to really have some insight into these kind of things. You have to know how to ask in the right way. Yes, for, for my benefit, Ajahn, or out of compassion for sentient beings, please. <laughs> Something like that. Actually, he won't buy that one. So you have to, <laughs> he won't buy that one. He's too... But you have to do it in the right way. You have to, it has to feel like you're coming from a good place, right? You have to see, oh, Ajahn, I was sitting in my cute, I was thinking, how does this work? And the thing about someone like Ajahn Brahm, he will always say something unexpected. Yeah, the thing, he will never say what you want to hear. If you go to Ajahn Brahm and you want to have your view confirmed, forget it. <laughs> He's going to tell you exactly what you don't want to hear. Yeah. And that's really cool about someone like Ajahn Brahm because he doesn't allow himself to be mani manipulated. Uh, he's not going to say what you want to hear. Uh, he's going to tell you what you don't want to hear. Uh, yeah, that's what he's going to say. Uh, and then you become a bit grumpy. Uh, and then he will look at you and he will. <laughs> this is really cool. Uh, and uh, so this is, and this is actually very nice because Ajahn, you know, the, the people who are at that level, because they are so free in so many ways, uh, this is one of the ways you know the freedom of someone. They will say things that you don't expect. Uh, they will bring a different angle into it. Uh, they will not say things that everyone else says. Uh, and so this is, uh, that's why it is really good fun to ask people. So I don't know who asked these questions here, but they obviously have probably had a lot of good fun asking these questions, yeah? And just inquiring, inquiring, inquiring. Yeah. So in, you can see how inquiry is a very big part of Buddhism, yeah? It's a very big part of it. People asking, 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 not being afraid. You should never, it's good to have, it's good to respect a good teacher, but not respect so much that we are afraid to ask questions. Then it goes too far, yeah? And then we don't actually get the best out of these people. So, 
um, how to proceed so that form disappears, right? How do happiness and suffering disappear? Tell me how they disappear. I think we ought to know these things. <laughs> and then comes this really enigmatic verse. I don't know what this verse means, to be honest with you, but maybe you can tell me what it means. I don't know. Without normal perception or distorted perception, not lacking perception, nor perceiving what has disappeared. That's how to proceed, so that form disappears. For concepts of identity due to proliferation spring from perception. So, what does this mean? <laughs> and um, there's many ways you can interpret this. I mean, you know, one of the obvious ways of interpreting it is to think of this as the immaterial attainments, because that's where you go beyond form, yeah, once and for all. And you can say that is not normal perception, nor distorted perception. When you get to this point, your perceptions aren't really distorted anymore, not lacking in perception nor perceiving what has disappeared. It kind of fits into that, yeah? And that's how to perceive that form disappears. Uh, but then this last part here is a bit different. The concepts of identity due to proliferation spring from perception. Concepts of identity. I haven't looked up the Pali. What is the Pali? Papancha is proliferation. Concepts would be something like sun. Sanka. So it's probably some, something to do with the Papancha Sanya Sanka, but I haven't actually looked up the Pali word behind this. So. But um, the, um, the uh, idea here is that the whole root of the problem is this thing called proliferation. Yeah, Papancha is the root of the problem. That's really what this comes down to. And this is the important thing here. What is that proliferation? And that proliferation is always defined as proliferation in three ways. Proliferation through craving, through views, and through the sense of, and through conceit. Yeah? These are the three ways that proliferation happens. We proliferate in the world. Proliferation just means it's endless moving on. And craving is the biggest proliferator probably of all three. Yeah, we desire things, so we think endlessly about how we're going to satisfy our desires. This is called proliferation. Then there's the proliferation of views. Yeah, views about the world, especially about who we are, etc. But the final proliferation, the most deepest one, is the conceit. Yeah, I am. That is the root of all of these proliferations. That is where it comes from, the I am conceit. So this is where all of this comes from. This is where it is all rooted in. And so much of Buddhism comes back to the idea of the problem of a sense of self. I am. I exist. This is the root thing. And once you exist in the world, then just things just kind of snowball from there. Once you are, the next step is, well, what I am? And then as soon as you say what you are, yeah, I am these, I am the will, I am the agent in the world. Well, once you are the agent, you have to do agency. You start doing things in the world, right? And once you start doing things, there's an endless amount of involvement with everything. Or you identify with certain perceptions. Yeah, I am better. I am, I am whatever you are. And once you identify with certain perceptions, those perceptions are often supported by the world outside, especially if you think of yourself in relation to other people. Yeah, I am 
I'm educated, or I'm uneducated for that matter, superiority conceit and inferiority conceit, or equality conceit. It leaches into the world the sense of I am, and then it moves on. So all of these things come from the very simple idea, I am, and it goes into the world, takes over the whole world eventually. And this is how we get all of these attachments and desires in regard to everything. So I am is problematic, and this is why um, we focus so much on this in Buddhism, and why we focus on eliminating it. It's a false perception. It is a mistake. That's what the Buddha says. You don't lose anything by getting rid of I am. In fact, you win. All you do is you win. You win reality. You win clarity. You see things in the right way. That's all you do. People think, oh, I'm going to lose myself. No, you don't lose anything. It's always been like this. It will always be like this. All you do is win insight and clarity. So this is uh, where it all comes from. And uh, so that's what the Buddha is talking about here. And there's a, another sutta that I, you may want to have a look at, which uh, talk about this particular area. And this one of them is the, uh, I mentioned the other day, the Madhupindika Sutta, the Honeyball Sutta, Majjhimanika 18. It is very closely related to this idea, and it gives you that similar kind of sequence uh, of how, why it is that... Um, where all the problems come from, ultimately. So, maybe not an entirely satisfactory explanation from my part, but that's all I can do for now. So, uh, yeah, anyway, probably plenty good enough. So let's finish off this sutta. Whatever I asked, you have explained to me. I ask you once more, please tell me this. Do some astute folk here say that this is the extent of the purification of the spirit? Don't know what this is in Pali. Anyway, or do they say it is something else? Some astute folk say that this is the highest extent of purification of the spirit. But some of them, claiming to be experts, speak of a time when nothing remains. So, so uh, is this the extent of the purification of spirit? In other words, do we have to abandon all of this proliferation? That's basically what he's saying here. That's what I take it to say anyway. Yeah, when we abandon all the proliferation, then of course all of these other things don't happen. If you don't proliferate, then eventually all of these things stop, and then we don't have any arguments anymore in the world, we don't have any of these problems. So is that the highest kind of purification? And in a sense it is, yeah, this is what it means to become enlightened, to give up these kind of ideas, give them up fully. But then he adds this kind of little extra little bit there, yeah? But some claiming to be experts uh, <laughs> speak of a time when nothing remains. So there's, this is the kind of given give this hint of this twofold idea of nibbana in Buddhism, the aparisesa uh, uh, nibbana and the parisesa nibbana. One meaning the nibbana with something remaining, and the nibbana with nothing remaining. Yeah. Yeah, so the initial purification according to Buddhism, this is really profound things, yeah. And this is um, this distinction between Parisesa and Aparisesa Nibbana, you only find it once in the suttas, I think it's somewhere in the Itivuttaka, but this is pointing to the same thing, yeah. 
uh, this idea that you, when, as long as you live, you're fully purified, you're still an arahant. But then when the arahant dies, uh, you're fully enlightened. Uh, it's like Venerable Sariputta says, like the workman, or workwoman, I suppose, uh, waiting for their wages. Yeah, and that is called Aparisesa Nibbana, when the arahant dies. Uh, and that uh, is the idea of nothing remaining, the speak of a time when nothing remains, yeah? The arahant passing away, yeah? and everything comes to an end. Uh, Siti Bhutto is called in the suttas. Uh, Venerable Nisarano, Adonisandros, reminded me today of a Siti Bhutto. And Siti Bhutto means become cool. Siti means cool. Bhutto means become. Uh, as you become cool, yeah, all feelings come to an end, and you are Siti Bhutto. And uh, we were saying we should have a monk, we should call the monk, or maybe the nun, Siti Bhutto. And it would mean the cool one. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, venerable cool one. <laughs> The cool venerable. Huh? Maybe I should change. Maybe we had to find someone who's really. Yeah, anyway, we find someone who can take that. Actually, I did suggest it to someone, and they didn't take it on. I was really disappointed. Huh? I wanted to be the called Siti Bhutto. Huh? Didn't work out. Huh? But this is the Dhamma, yeah? Becoming cool, everything becoming cool, everything passing away, everything coming to an end. And this is what this is about. And you can see how the Buddha is very careful here, yeah? Some claiming to be experts, they say this. Uh, because these things are so profound. And unless you have a little bit of openness of mind and you are ready for something really, really deep, you will reject the Dhamma at that point. Why would anyone be interested in this? Uh, everything coming to an end, what are you talking about? Uh, I don't want to hear that. Uh, <laughs> And the reason you don't want to hear that is because it goes against the very feeling of existence that we have inside of us. Uh, yeah, this is such a deep-seated thing. Uh, and it's very hard to understand the ending of things, nothingness, uh, when you have that vested interest, very, very powerful vested interest in existence. Uh, this is the problem. Uh, and so that's why these things cannot be understood not fully understood until you see through the delusion of a self. Only then can you really understand what this is about, because then you don't have that vested interest anymore. When, once the vested interest is gone, then you can understand dukkha fully, all the five khandas and all of that. So I hope I haven't scared you off. Maybe I will never see you again after this. <laughs> Next year, no more, no more you on these retreats. Okay, I'm going to find a different teacher, a more reasonable teacher. These teachers here, they don't know what they're talking about. So, we'll <laughs> so coming to the very last verse, knowing that these states are dependent and knowing what they depend on, the inquiring sage, having understood is freed and does not dispute. The wise do not go on into life after life. Yeah, so you know the dependency. Here you know dependent origination. You understand the causality of these things. You understand specifically that craving leads to rebirth. And you also understand that craving depends on the sense of self. When there is no sense of self, craving stops. When craving stops, rebirth stops. Yeah, ignorance, paticca samupada, dependent origination, starting off with ignorance, via craving, ending with rebirth. Yeah, and rebirth, of course, is dukkha. 
This is what I said, dependent origination really comes down to these three things. Uh, the idea of craving, the idea of suffering, and the idea of rebirth in between. Uh, and then I, now I just added ignorance, but ignorance is just really an aspect of craving because it is involved with craving. There's no craving without that. Uh, you understand that whole dependency. Uh, and when you understand it, then you can let go of the causes. Uh, when you let go of the causes, you are freed. Uh, and the freed person never disputes with anyone in the world. Uh, it's interesting, one of the things you find in this Atakavaga, you find the idea that uh, the uh, sage doesn't have any views. That's what it says there. It seems to be saying that they don't have any views. But what does it mean not to have any views in Buddhism? And what it means is not uh, holding on to the views. That's what it means. You don't attach to them. So you never argue with anyone, right? It's only when you are attached that you argue. So you have views, but you hold those views in a very different way from how most people hold their views. You know the truth, and because you know the truth, you don't need to attach anymore. And this is really the sage, how they do things. Yeah, so you are freed, and you don't dispute with anyone because of that freedom and that understanding that you have acquired. And then you don't go on into life after life. So, whoa, I didn't know that sutta was so profound. I sort of thought it was a nice sutta to read out. And I started looking at it and thinking, jeepers, what have I got myself into? <laughs> so um, I hope you are okay with that. We're going to come back to some more, uh, more kind of lit little bit more down to earth stuff later on. Uh, but um, there you are. We're going to get more practical again. We kind of—it's nice to kind of fluctuate a bit between practical things and things that are a bit profound. Yeah, I don't know, but I enjoy that. You have a little bit to think about that takes you one step deeper, and then you have the really practical things that tell you exactly what you have to do, and kind of moving back and forth between the two. Anyway, that's kind of what I think, and maybe that's kind of my idea. Anyway, that is all for now. So. Please keep on enjoying yourself, have a nice cup of tea, and then we'll see you back again at 6.30 this evening.